So we'll continue forward in the book of Acts, looking at verses 33 through 42 of Acts chapter 5. The message is entitled, Gamaliel Helps the Gospel Go Forth. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. <clears throat> I'll read from verse 22 of chapter 5 through until verse 7 of chapter 6. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible Word. When the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely, and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. Then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostle outside for a little while. The apostles outside for a little while. And he said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. 
Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen. 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 Please be seated. As we look around in today's world, we can see many examples of the Lord God permitting the reign of His Son to be troubled. How can we have the proper response to the ragings of God's enemies? How can we have a proper response to this? Let us remember the Lord's Word. He laughs at His enemies, brothers and sisters. He holds them in derision. And He grants us invincible joy when we suffer shame for His name. Calvin said, when God permits the reign of His Son to be troubled, He does not cease from interfering because He is employed elsewhere or unable to afford assistance or because He is neglectful of the honor of His Son. But He purposely delays the inflictions of His wrath to the proper time, namely, until he has exposed their infatuated rage to general derision. Let us therefore assure ourselves that if God does not immediately stretch forth his hand against the ungodly, it is now his time of laughter. And although in the meantime we ought to weep, yet let us assuage the bitterness of our grief, yea, and wipe away our tears with this reflection, that God does not connive at the wickedness of his enemies, as if from indolence or feebleness, but because for the time he would confront their insolence with quiet contempt. The Beatitudes uh, given to us in the Gospel of Luke in chapter 6, verses 22 and 23, verses to be memorized, I would say, Blessed are you when men hate you, And when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven. For in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. Commentary says to us that Christians can have joy in the midst of suffering not because they enjoy suffering. Believers in Jesus, we are not masochists. Pain or humiliation is always the result of sin and thus evil and can therefore never be the cause of pleasure. Christians have joy in the midst of suffering because they suffer for the name of Jesus. Christians who suffer for the sake of Jesus share in God's mission to save the world through His Son, Jesus Christ, which is cause for rejoicing. 
And they have been promised rewards in heaven if and when they suffer in faithful discipleship. Today as we go through this text, we'll see the murderous response of the Sanhedrin given to us in verse 33. And then we'll see wise Gamaliel intervening. He tells them to let the apostles alone. We'll see the response of the Sanhedrin to his suggestion that he makes. We'll see the response of the apostles to what the Sanhedrin does. And then some questions to know and to love and to obey God more. So first of all, the murderous response of the Sanhedrin. The text tells us in verse 33, when they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill them. This word furious has as its literal meaning to saw asunder to, or to saw in two, to divide by a saw. Or looking at it in terms of what went on inside these leaders, to be sawn through mentally, to be rent with vexation. To be vexed is to be teased or provoked, irritated, troubled, agitated, disquieted, afflicted. There was a storm inside their souls as a result of what they had heard. The King James interprets this word as cut to the heart. ESV says enraged. NASB says became infuriated. They heard something, they didn't like it, and their response was fury and rage. What did they do? As a result of this, they began to plot. And this Greek word here means they deliberated, they were considering, they were thinking, they were taking counsel together, they were making resolution together based on this fury, the shared fury of these leaders. Young's literal translation says they were taking counsel. The ASV says they were minded. So together they were moving on a path to kill the apostles. They did not like the preaching of the gospel that they had been exposed to. They hated the message so much that they decided they were going to kill the messengers. This is the extreme example of an ad hominem response. So what had they heard that vexed them so, that enraged them so, as if they had been cut in two on the inside? What caused them to become so furious that they talked amongst themselves and were minded to kill the apostles? Let's go back to the prior verses. Acts chapter 5, verses 29 through 32, and look at what they had heard. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things, and so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Brothers and sisters, this is good news. This should thrill the heart of any lost sinner to hear these words. They had declared to the council that their actions were illegitimate. That's the first thing. They said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So they told them that your command to not speak in his name was an illegitimate command. They declared that the council had murdered Jesus Christ 
whom they declared to be the Messiah, the awaited Messiah. They declared to the council not only that their decision was illegitimate regarding Jesus, not only that they had murdered him, acting wrongly, murdered their Messiah, but they declared to them that the Lord God had vindicated Jesus Christ by raising him up from the dead, proving that the council had murdered their own Messiah. They further declared to the council the Lord God had exalted Christ to the right hand of God as Prince and Savior. Ultimate exaltation. Ultimate vindication. Demonstrating how low and how foolish and how illegitimate this council had become. The apostles also declared themselves to be God's witnesses to Jesus as the unjustly murdered, resurrected, ascended, and exalted Messiah. They said, we are the witnesses of this. And then going further, they went on to declare God himself to be witnessing to Christ as the Messiah via the outpouring of his Holy Spirit. Through all of these miracles, these healings, these signs and wonders, and widespread conversions, faith being poured out from heaven, further testifying to who Jesus Christ is. I think we need to recall the descriptions of these tyrants from Psalm 2. I suspect we'll be going back to this text over and over again as it does set for us a grid of understanding as we go through the book of Acts. Psalm 2 verses 1 through 3 say, Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. Here they are. These are the rulers taking counsel together. And what is their counsel? Against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. These Jewish leaders don't want to hear this message anymore. They want it to stop. They want to shred it, burn it, eliminate it from their minds, from their sight, from their culture, just like we see in Psalm 2. And it's important for us to recall that this is the very scripture that the Christians referenced in their prayer to God after they had first faced persecution in Acts chapter 4. These Jewish leaders are fulfilling this text. They have hardened their hearts against the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and against the beloved bride of Christ. And they plot again at this point in time to abuse their power unto murder like they had done with the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry says they were filled with malice against the apostles themselves, since they see they cannot stop their mouths any other way than by stopping their breath. They take counsel to slay them, hoping that so they shall cause the work to cease. So they hated the message so much that they devoted themselves at this time to killing the messengers. What happens next? God's providence is on display for us. Wise Gamaliel intervenes and he tells them his final recommendation, let the apostles alone. He goes through some convincing arguments to win and to bring them back from where they were. The text says, then one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people, and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. And he said to the men of Israel, Take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men, 
For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or work, or for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. Now, Gamaliel, this name means my recompenser is God, my reward is from God. We're told that he's a Pharisee, that he is a known teacher of the law, that he is respected by all the people. And this word respected here gets to the idea of precious. He was precious to the people. He was held in honor. He was esteemed. He was especially dear to the people of Jerusalem because he was such a good leader, because he taught the law so well. Even... Even the Sadducees respected him. How else could he have become the president of the Sanhedrin? Commentary says, A Pharisee and celebrated doctor of the law who gave prudent advice in the Sanhedrin respecting the treatment of the followers of Jesus. From Acts 22.3, it appears that he was Paul's preceptor. So he's, he's also Paul's preceptor. He's generally and properly identified with the very celebrated Jewish doctor Gamaliel. This Gamaliel, and this is according to uh, extra-biblical historical resources, this Gamaliel was the son of Rabbi Simeon and grandson of the celebrated Hillel. He was president of the Sanhedrin under Tiberius, Caligula, and Claudius, and is reported to have died 18 years before the destruction of Jerusalem. Some commentaries suggest that the Simeon in the temple who beheld Jesus may have been his father. We don't know for sure. The events of today's text likely occur in AD 30. We've talked about this. So Tiberius reigned from 14 to 37, Caligula from 37 to 41, and Claudius from 41 to 54. So it appears that Gamaliel was the president of the Sanhedrin and or a very well-known and influential leader amongst the Jews during at least part of the reign of Tiberius, all of the reign of Caligula, and at least part of the reign of Claudius. So the events are AD 30. Gamaliel was likely the leader of the Sanhedrin at this time, which is significant given the great influence of the Sadducees amongst the Sanhedrin because they had significant theological differences and yet they agreed for Gamaliel to be the leader of the Sanhedrin. So we know Jerusalem was destroyed about A.D. 70, so Gamaliel likely dies around A.D. 58. Hence, he would have continued as the president of the Sanhedrin, or at least an influential leader, for 28 years, 28 more years after the events of today's text. So he's an important individual, <clears throat> very influential, and he had been in place for a while, and would remain in place for a while after this. You have to wonder what was on his mind when he stood up and made this speech. Perhaps he's thinking back to their decision to have Christ put to death. He would have been there for that. Maybe he's recalling the soldiers 
story about an empty tomb. And maybe now he's noting the miracles that accompany Christ's apostles. Perhaps he's beginning to wonder who Jesus Christ really is and who these apostles really are. We're told that he's also, he was also Paul's instructor in the law. Paul said about him, about himself, in Acts 22, he says, I am indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law, and was zealous toward God as you all are today. Looking at historical resources, it appears as though Paul was likely born sometime between 5 and 10 A.D. So he would have grown up there in Jerusalem during the teens and 20s of A.D., learning from Gamaliel, uh, likely would have been there during some of the Passovers and the feasts when Jesus was there. So we see these connections. We see the importance of Gamaliel in many ways in the New Testament. Commentary says his prominence is reflected in the rabbinic comment that when Rabbin Gamaliel the Elder died, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. His reputation is reflected in the fact that he was evidently the first rabbi called Rabbin, meaning our teacher. <clears throat> rabbinic traditions indicate that he had authority in establishing the calendar, that he had contacts with the seat of the Roman government in Syria which also controlled Jerusalem and Judea, and that he had influence in the diaspora. Gamaliel evidently decided questions regarding permissible movement on the Sabbath of witnesses who attested sightings of the sun and the moon, essential for establishing details relating to the sacred calendar, a role that indicates Gamaliel's reputation and standing among the chief priests of the temple. <coughs> now this is all... <clears throat> worth emphasizing, I want us to take note of God's providence at this time and how he had placed Gamaliel and the level of influence he had given to this man at this time. His role in the Sanhedrin, <clears throat> it appears as though he has the authority to direct the proceedings to such an extent that he can stand and command for the apostles to be escorted out for the remainder of the deliberations. So what are the main points that Gamaliel makes when he stands and speaks? He warns the council, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. Their anger has gained the momentum in this proceeding at this time. But Gamaliel calls them to collect themselves. He senses that there's this emotional, irrational tidal wave heading towards a bad outcome. And he calls them to regain their composure and to return to reason instead of their irrational passions. Commentary says, when he spoke to them, it means to give attention to something. And in this context, it means think before you act on your emotions. I'll just say, take note of this and we're going to come back to this when we get to the questions at the end. And I'll tell you, you and me and every one of us are so easily guilty of this. Right? We have to compare ourselves to everybody in the story, not just the good guys. 
Next, Gamaliel goes on. He gives two examples of self-destructive movements that were dispersed without the need for the council to intervene. So apparently these two stories were well enough known by the council that would have meant something to them. He was educated. He knew the history. They'd been through this before. This wasn't his first rodeo. The movements of Theudas and Judas of Galilee were not of God, but of men. And their own ignorance and their own rash behavior got them killed and their movements were wiped out. <clears throat> Commentary says, Josephus mentions a Thutis revolting during the governorship of Thetis, but that was later in AD 44 to 46. So it's too late to fit the timing of Gamaliel's speech, given more than a decade earlier. And I mentioned this, just stepping away from the commentary a bit. Some liberal commentaries are going to claim that Luke is inaccurate in his history because Thutis came later. Now back to the commentary. Given the popularity of the name and the turmoil of the period leading to the census and Judas the Galilean mentioned next in verse 37, Gamaliel may well be referring to a Theudas who was earlier than the one Josephus mentions. This Theudas would have preceded the activity of Judas during the census period. Bruce argues that this figure may date back to insurgencies that arose in Palestine after the death of Herod the Great in 4 B.C., a time that Josephus also mentions as turbulent. So all that to say, we don't know for sure when this Theudas episode occurred, but it is not possible for it to be the same episode that we read about in Josephus that took place in AD 46 and 47 under the Roman leader Fadus. So the next episode, he talks about Judas of Galilee. and He mentions the census. We know more about this. Gamaliel's second example concerns a figure whom he places after Theudas, Judas the Galilean. And this rebel's activity appeared during the time of the census, which was A.D. 6. Followers of Judas are part of a politically zealous movement against the taxation of the census. Bruce sees Quirinius as responsible for the census, but appointing officers such as Caponius to supervise it. This Judas also drew an unspecified number of followers, after his death, his followers scattered and his movement disappeared. So Luke is an eminent historian. And looking back through the extra-biblical historical records, we see time and time again the extra-biblical records falling right in line with the inspired Word of God, the inspired history from Luke. And then based upon these two examples... Gamaliel advises the council to keep away from these men and let them alone. His logic is straightforward. It makes perfectly good sense. Why kill these men if they are on their way to self-destruction at the hands of the Romans? Why get involved? Gamaliel cites these historical precedents, the commentary tells us, in order to show that there were several popular movements which claimed prophetic sanction or messianic dignity, like the apostles were doing, Movements which attracted large numbers of followers, like the apostles were doing, but they quickly dissolved once the leader of the movement had been eliminated. So then he lays out the two interwoven maxims that underlie his argument. And they're kind of two sides of the same coin. If this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. If the apostles' plan, if their work is of the flesh if it's not from God, then it will die out 
on its own. They don't need to intervene. Just let it take its course. The other side of the coin, but if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it. If the apostles' plan or work is from God, then no effort of the council can undo it. They intervene in vain if these men are doing God's will. So he makes a strong argument to just let these men alone. And he takes it one step further. He describes the sad outcome if the council gets it wrong. Lest you even be found to fight against God. And this is a powerful argument. He introduces enough uncertainty into their deliberations about the apostles, about who they are and who they might be. And then he lays out the very serious consequences of wrongly mistreating the apostles, which would be at war, God, at war with God, to be fighting against the Lord and what he is doing. Commentary tells us about Gamaliel. Gamaliel suggests that history reveals whether or not a community or a movement comes from God. So we have to stop for a moment and think about this argumentation that Gamaliel made. So let's think about it. Going back to the commentary. His counsel is certainly not always a helpful principle to assess whether a movement has divine authorization. Some movements that grew out of the Christian church but must be regarded as unorthodox or outright heretical have managed to survive over long periods of time. The Roman Catholic Church regarded the Protestant Church as such a movement without divine sanction, taking legal measures against evangelicals in some places for hundreds of years. Evangelical churches regard the Church of the Latter-day Saints, that's Mormons, as a movement without authentic divine authorization, and yet the Mormons have been around since 1827, and they're not dying off, but they're growing and expanding. But still, based on Gamaliel's dictum, the existence of congregations of believers in Jesus who confess allegiance to Jesus as Israel's Messiah and Savior of the world, not only surviving 2,000 years, but growing it in ways that were unimaginable to the Jerusalem of A.D. 30, it is an indication that it has the stamp of God's approval. Jesus promised that the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. So in some sense, what he has to say is not always accurate. But in another sense, there is some helpful truth here that is, if it is of God, it will persist. It will last. It will go on. It will grow. It will bear more and more fruit in the earth. And that's what God's church has done through the years. So how does the Sanhedrin respond to Gamaliel's argument? To his, effort, to, to his effort to slow down their murderous rage. Well, they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. So Gamaliel's argument arrests them. It brings a pause to them. Their furious, murderous plotting stops. Think about that. That's, that's quite a move of God through this man Gamaliel. They reign in their anger, they shed their irrational scheming, and they agree with Gamaliel. Commentary says the members of the Sanhedrin changed their mind. Luke notes that the Jewish leaders find Gamaliel's counsel persuasive, and they abandon their plan to kill the leaders of the Jesus movement. 
They may have been convinced by the rabbi's reference to historical precedent that the prophetic and messianic movements of the recent past all came to nothing, or they may have been swayed by his logical argument that one should not risk to be in a position where one might be fighting against God. That's not a risk worth taking. The persuasion does not refer to a decision about whether the movement which the apostles represent has a human or divine origin. They're not making that choice. It just refers to the decision not to plan the execution of these apostles. So they agree. We won't kill them. What happens next? The apostles are beaten. So it's worth noting this is the first time that violence upon their bodies is mentioned during the growth of the church in Jerusalem. They were severely threatened earlier. And those severe threats, there's some fruit given to those severe threats by the council at this point in time. This word beaten at its root means to flay, to skin, to beat or thrash or smite. Commentary says they punished them physically, beating them before releasing them. Beating is mentioned in only three passages in Acts, this Greek word. Chapters 5, 16, and 22. And the flogging looks forward to what Paul will suffer. Such flogging is regulated. It's probably the 40 lashes minus one. The whipping would have been on the back and chest with a three-stranded strap of calf hide. So it's unlikely that they used what the Romans would have used, which would have hard metal or bone woven into the tip. The Jews didn't do that. The whipping would have been on the back and chest with a three-stranded strap of calf hide. This could leave one close to death, if not dead, from loss of blood. The hope is that by intensifying the punishment, a deterrent will be established. They are wrong. So they decide not to kill them, and instead they decide to beat them to a point near death. And this would have opened their skin. They would have had multiple, if you think of 39, and three whips on the end of each one. What's 39 times three? There could be that many opened wounds and slices across their back and their chest and their belly. Probably some on their arms as well and their shoulders, maybe their neck. And so they're bleeding a lot at this point in time. And they have a lot of pain. And they know they might bleed to death or either become infected and die. So they they're, you know, don't pass over that word beaten and what they've experienced physically. And not to mention just physically, there's great shame associated with this. And it's not the kind of shame that you can just cover up with a shirt. It would have been obvious. People would have seen that they had been beaten by the great high Jewish court in this fashion. Beatings reserved for bad people. What else did they do? After they beat them, they, they renewed the total ban against speaking in the name of Jesus. So they really want to terrify these men into shutting their mouths and getting on with their lives in some other place. Because this is always the goal of God's enemies. As long as God's people do not go about preaching the gospel everywhere, as long as you shut your mouth, 
and keep it to yourself in your own family or here in our nice little church. As long as we do not take the gospel to the world, calling men everywhere to repent through both teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ, as long as we don't go and turn the world upside down, God's enemies could care less. Read your little Bible in your little quiet time space. Have your nice little family, your nice little marriage, and your nice little church. Keep it to yourself, and you won't get your skin ripped off by the bad guys. As long as we keep our religion confined in our hearts and our homes and churches, God's enemies are pleased. These beatings are meant to bring shame upon the apostles and upon their message and to silence them. Get this message out of the temple. Get this message out of the streets of Jerusalem. And they tell them not to do it anywhere. But particularly, they don't want it out in public. And you know, similar efforts are underway today. You do understand that there is a culture of shame that is in place right now to keep you from speaking the gospel aloud in public. To keep you from proclaiming that Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the current ruler of the kings of the earth. There, there's, there's work taking place through media, through Facebook, through Instagram, through everywhere else that you look, through public education, that is shaming you into silence. The rise of theocracy among conservatives. A meet the Press report, you may have heard about it, where they interviewed a pastor from Idaho because of his theocratic leanings. But what really is going on is because of the widening influence of Scripture in society and politics, Christians are not leaving Jesus at home. Christians are telling people in public that all men everywhere are called to repent and that our elected officials will be held accountable to the Lord Jesus Christ, as will pastors and moms and dads and people everywhere in every walk of life. So because of the widening influence of Scripture in society and politics, a national media outlet put together a hit piece meant to connect certain political candidates with that bad word, theocracy. Now, I think Pastor Wilson did a masterful job in dealing with the interview, and I encourage you to watch not only the interview, but his response to it, because he was wise enough to have the entire thing videoed by his own people, so he's got the entire context of everything. This journalistic beating is meant to shame Christians into silence. Will it work? How will these political candidates... You go read the article, and they they talk about Pastor Wilson. They talk about this Christian nationalist movement. They paint it out to be a very terrible thing. And then they start listing political candidates who appear to be taking it up. So this shaming is underway. Will it work? Will these political candidates continue to give glory to God? and continue to look to Christ to guide them. Well, how do the apostles respond to this beating, this shaming, and this commandment to not speak in Jesus' name? You know, there's nothing mentioned here about going and getting bandaged up and getting cleaned up and all the weeping and hand-wringing and what are we going to do I mean, I don't know about you, but I think that many of us, if we went through this, that would be the next part of what would be written here. 
there was, there was moaning and wailing, and they, they ran away. And, and they went to the doctor, and they stopped talking in public about Jesus. But that's not what they did. After they were beaten and released, the apostles depart from the presence of the council. Their trial is over. And how do they respond? The very first thing that we hear about their response is that they rejoiced. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Brothers and sisters, I think we... May God make this so of us. But is, is it true? Do we have this kind of faith? This word rejoice means to be glad, to rejoice exceedingly, to be well. This wasn't a mask that they put on. This was flowing forth from inside. This was real fruit coming from them because they had been connected with the suffering of Jesus Christ. That's what it says, counted worthy. To account worthy, to judge worthy. Who's the judge that judged them worthy? The one judge. The sovereign God of heaven judged these twelve worthy to suffer shame. That's dishonor, insult, contempt. So on the one hand, they're counted honorable by God. But on the other hand, under contempt and the dishonor of the Jewish leaders. They had to have known in their hearts where they had come from that at one point in time they had not been counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. At one point in time they didn't have the faith they needed. At one point in time they didn't have the love for Christ that they needed. But now they do. They've been through that change. You remember what happened to them in Gethsemane when they all ran away except for John? They just weren't there for their Lord. None of them stood right there with him and said, where he goes, I go. Where he goes, I go. But now, they do. And they rejoice. They rejoice. And i got to tell you, think about it. Part of the greatest rejoicing has got to be that they didn't run away. That they didn't leave Jerusalem. Because they were told twice, right? Remember, Jesus told them. And then when they were sent, released from prison, the angel told them again. They, they had to have been thinking, can we leave now? Is it time for the gospel to go to, to Samaria and Judea and the rest of the world? And let's get out of Jerusalem. How excited and happy they must have been just to have not run away. And they're overflowing, brothers and sisters, with sincere gladness, exceeding joy, because of the Lord's judgment. See, the council had made a judgment, but the Lord also made a judgment that they had been found worthy to suffer real shame and contempt in the eyes of the council and in the eyes of society because of their faithfulness to Christ, because they identified with Jesus Christ. Commentary says the apostles react to their punishment with joy. As they leave the council building and walk through the streets of Jerusalem, the marks of their beating, perhaps visible, and I would say probably vi visible. They are full of joy. The present participle here, full of joy, describes not just a brief emotional reaction. That's not what we're talking about. This isn't a brief emotional reaction that could come from the flesh, but a continuous sense of gladness that comes over them as they leave the Sanhedrin. 
As Peter's boldness to proclaim Jesus as the Messiah and Savior in chapter 4, verse 8, was the result of the invasive presence of the Holy Spirit, so is the reaction of the apostles to the arrest, the night in prison, the interrogation, the beating, and the ban, which they will continue to ignore. They are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Now, it's really important for us to note something here. Their gladness for this dishonor is rooted in Christ. They can be glad and rejoice in their suffering only because they are suffering the shame that flows from publicly identifying with Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They are not looking for personal vindication. They are not trying to make sure their own reputation does not get sullied. That is not what is happening inside of them. Because if that had been what was inside of them, they would have been more concerned about getting stitches and cleaned up. They would have been more concerned about their own well-being. They would have been more concerned about a lot of other things and the joy would not have been there. What they're concerned about is the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and being connected with Him. And this is always, always true, that thence flows our joy. The reason for their joy is the blessing that Jesus had pronounced on His followers who were hated, excluded, reviled, and defamed on account of the Son of Man and the, who, who thus can rejoice and even leap for joy because their reward is great in heaven. Now the twelve may have skipped, the commentary says, the twelve may have skipped the leaping after their beating, but they rejoice in the fact that they were treated like the prophets and indeed like Jesus, Israel's Messiah and Savior, because they remained faithful to the name, to Jesus and to His cause. So they're rejoicing. But they're not just emotional. This is real joy. And it has fruit associated with it in terms of behaviors. What is that? They ignore the illegitimate command. And they go on to unceasing daily gospel preaching everywhere in Jerusalem. Now, all all sorts of temptations must have faced them at this point in time after a a public beating like this and a ban from the highest court in their land, the apostles and the church, prior to the renewed ban and the beatings, think back to what we learned about them before this, they had been vigorous in their effort to obey Christ's mission. They had been going house to house, door to door. They'd been in the temple, in the homes, in the streets. They had been everywhere, preaching and teaching Jesus as the Christ, fulfilling what they had been commanded to do, saying what they were told to say everywhere they were told to say it. Day by day. That's what they were doing. This phrasing here in today's text from Luke shows us that they not only continued in their obedience, but they also did not let up one bit. There's different shapes and sizes of disobedience, brothers and sisters. The apostles maybe thought about sleeping in a little bit more the next day. Maybe I won't go straight to the temple for the morning prayers. My back kind of hurts. Maybe they would have thought about leaving the temple a little earlier. Or maybe they would have thought about, hey, let's just go door to door. Hey, let's just keep this inside the houses. We can still teach and preach the message. Brothers and sisters, they did not let up at 
all. It's a very important thing for us to see. They kept their foot on the gas, and if anything, they may have upgraded the engine, continuing with all their energy at this point, in all places, at all times. If you look at the phrasing in the text, you can see Luke wants us to see they did not let up. In all good ways, they were teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. That is Jesus as the Messiah. That is the gospel of the kingdom of God. They would not be silenced and they would not slow down. They were not afraid. They were joyful. And they went forth and continued obedience. Commentary says, The fact that the apostles defy the Sanhedrin's ban and continue to proclaim Jesus as Israel's Messiah and Savior implies the parting of the ways of Jews and followers of Jesus. Whether the latter are Jewish believers, as in Jerusalem and Judea during this time, or whether they are Gentile believers. As the apostles preached Jesus as Messiah in the temple, despite the ban on speaking imposed by the Jewish leaders in the highest court of the land, Luke has answered for his readers the question concerning the leadership over Israel. Who are the leaders of Israel? Not the faithless members of the Sanhedrin, but these 12 are truly ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel. Praise be to God. So when you think about these 12 apostles, and you think about these enemies of God, what kind of ways do you ponder? What principles come to your mind about life today, your life in today's world? I have a few questions for you to consider. Have you ever become angry or offended by preaching? Have you ever become angry or offended by preaching? If so, was it a righteous indignation? A proper kind of anger? Or, and I can tell you a story about a friend who threw his shoe at a chapel door in Scotland. That was righteous anger at ungodly preaching. But there's another kind of offense at preaching presented to us in today's text. So was your anger righteous or was it your sin refusing to submit to God's word? Those are the two options that we face when we're offended by preaching. It's either righteous or it is not. It is rebellious. And the the text today gives us a clue. There's a clue here. If it is unrighteous, if it is your flesh, it will probably also include ad hominem attacks against the preacher. You will think and say bad things about the preacher who brings you this message. These things tend to go together. The hatred of the message gets carried over to the hatred toward the messenger. If you're tempted to attack and insult the preacher, then perhaps you've experienced the sin of the council. They were furious at the message, so they decided to kill the messenger. Whereas, on the other hand, if it's not an unrighteous anger, if it's a a righteous anger against the message, it's far less likely that you're going to be tempted and give way to ad hominem thoughts against the one who brought that bad message. So I think that's worth considering, looking back on your own history, your own experience, and listening to preaching in your life. 
And of course, that can include, you know, reading books, listening to sermons, all sorts of exposures to the preaching of God's Word. Next, are you careful to examine yourself when you are offended and angry? <coughs> when you're feeling offended and angry, are you careful to stop and to examine yourself? Do you take heed to yourself? Do you stop and take care to submit to God and to submit to sound thinking? Do you have an inner Gamaliel that's going to say, hey, take heed of yourself? We all need to be that for each other and may God grant to us to have that kind of sound mind. To perceive when that fire is boiling forth and to stop and take care. Next. Do you understand that human means and human methods cannot accomplish God's will? You may be aiming for a righteous outcome, but you may be trying to accomplish it through the arm of the flesh, using carnal means, carnal measures, instead of the weapons of our warfare that God has given to us. And in the context of today's teaching, The warning here is that you will be destroyed by the Romans even though you might have a godly goal. Okay? And I think this is why it was super unwise for a lot of people to go to D.C. on January 6th like they did and not see what was going to be probably coming their way by being there. Now, was it wrong to be there? I'm not saying that. But if you couldn't step back and see what was going on in our world and understand what kind of place you might be stepping into by going there, then you're missing what's going on in our world today. That's just one example of how using human means and human measures can lead to you being in trouble with the government and your efforts leading to nothing but dispersion, and disappointment. Now, of course, we, we can go and we can protest. There are biblical principles of protest that we want to learn, learn to follow. I'm not speaking against that. I'm calling us to be wise, consider the methods that we use in today's world. Next, are you encouraged to know, do you really believe, that no earthly power can stop God's kingdom from going forth? Think of it. Think of the situation that this little church found itself in. It's smaller than, than most big city megachurches, even still. At this point in time, at this point in time in Jerusalem, this church is probably smaller than most modern big city megachurches. Mega and they're facing the combined power of the Jews and in the background, all of the power of the Romans. What does God do? He keeps them free. He keeps them able to go and preach the gospel. He preserves their lives through this episode and they continue to do his will in the face of all of this, all of this great power and the menacing structures that stood against them. So are you encouraged to know that nothing can stop the advance of God's kingdom? Next, do you have the boldness of the apostles? Wow. 
Or does the threat of public shame silence you? Or maybe cause you to take your foot off the gas a little bit? You know, we ask these questions, can we really know the answers, right? We can pray and ask God to to give us the boldness of the apostles, the faith of the apostles. I don't think any of us have faced the things that they faced to that extent. All right, next. How do you deal with God at this point in time, allowing his enemies to flourish? How do you, how do you deal with this? Do you tr- trust his wisdom and his coming judgment? Do you trust that he can laugh with derision from heaven for as long as he has decided to, allowing them to fill up the full measure of their guilt? And meanwhile, do you persist in prayer and a devotion to holiness in your life. Leaving all of these raging enemies to be dealt with by God and praying appropriately, praying appropriately and living appropriately, or do you allow yourself to get distracted by it, wring your hands, (coughs) clicking through the channels, or is your life still word-centered, God-centered, gospel-centered, Christ-centered, and focused on loving him and doing his will. It can be very easy to get very upset about the ragings of God's enemies. And the word to us from Scripture is, do not fret because of God's enemies. It only leads to evil. So, we trust in the Lord. We keep our focus on him. We remember who he is. Remember what he is doing. Remember what he is doing in the earth through his people. And he is placing his enemies under his feet and we continue to preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another and to this world. All right, next. What threats do we face today in our nation? Shame, loss of reputation, decrease of revenue, imprisonment. These are things that we face in our nation today. Especially if you go across the border into Canada you face the threat of imprisonment for preaching the gospel. What about globally? Beatings, death, having your house blown up, imprisonment. It's a pretty regular occurrence around the world, brothers and sisters. I hope that you do not forget this as you are praying, that there are brothers and sisters in Christ, our eternal family members, who are currently being beaten, raped, robbed, mistreated all over this earth because of their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. It's easy for us to forget that, isn't it? So I think a text like this calls us to stop and remember that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is not just the church of South Carolina, the church of Edgefield, the church of Georgia, the church of the United States of America. It is the church of the whole world. And we are bound up with every one of them around the entire world. And may our lives and our prayers reflect this knowledge. And it's only God's astonishing grace and mercy that we have not begun to experience the same level of persecution here in our nation and in our state and in our region. Next. Do you let up on teaching and preaching the gospel 
varying what you do based upon the threat level of your situation. I would encourage you to put your foot on the gas and press it all the way down. I will praise you, O oh my God, when the sun rises and when the sun sets. I will meditate upon you and your glory all the day long, moment by moment, all the day. And as long as I breathe and as long as my heart beats and as long as I can speak, this tongue will proclaim his praises and his glory. And these hands will seek to do his will. And we will seek to call people out of darkness into light all the days of our lives in every moment, in every situation. <clears throat> Daily, everywhere, teaching and preaching that Jesus is the Christ. Build your life on this goal. And this is why, in so many ways, many entrepreneurial efforts are completely misdirected. Because if you do not make a plan for teaching and the preaching of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in your business model, and that the gospel is not a daily part of who you are and what you're doing in your business model, then you have forgotten this. The business place, the workplace, is not a place where we go and forget about Jesus. It is the reason there's so much nonsense and lack of wisdom present in the business world today. Shame on those who agree to any place where the lordship and the glory of the of the Lord Jesus Christ cannot be constantly proclaimed. Shame on them. And their businesses will reap what they sow in doing that eventually. Next. Do you have overflowing joy and gladness when you suffer shame for his name? Can you even think of a time when you suffered, suffered shame for his name in your life? And are you rejoicing to share in his sufferings when you go through this? I do want to read to us again this text from Luke that I said earlier in the sermon was worth memorizing. I hope you'll take time to write it on your scripture memory cards and, and take the time to memorize it. It's what Jesus said. Blessed are you when men hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and cast out your name as evil for the Son of Man's sake. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For indeed your reward is great in heaven, for in like manner their fathers did to the prophets. I would think it would be a very wise thing for each one of us to pray and, and make a regular part of our prayers that the Lord would give you this kind of faith, to make you this kind of Christian who is bold, not, not, discouraged, not dissuaded, not that fear cannot drive you away from doing God's will. And when you do suffer for doing God's will, you rejoice so that you can know the life of joyful obedience that these apostles demonstrate to us. That we would, we would see that we're probably not that kind of person, or at least we don't know, do we? Because we've never been through this kind of thing. And that God would bless us with this kind of faith, with this kind of boldness. And really, what we're saying is, oh Lord, please pour out your spirit upon us. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we, we gaze and wonder once again, oh God, in your work 
through these apostles in this early church. And we consider the boldness that you gave to them. And we say, oh God, we trust that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Please give us, your people, your Holy Spirit. Give us this boldness. Lord, we marvel that they would rejoice when their bodies have been cut and abused in such a fashion through these beatings. And we desire to be like them, Lord, that we would rejoice anytime we suffer shame for your name. Bless us, Lord, to be those whose lives, whose minds and hearts are the same with Christ, thinking his thoughts and loving what he loves. That our hands and feet, Lord, would be all about obeying you and doing what you've called us to do, Lord Jesus. Come and destroy your enemies, we ask. Place them under your feet. And strengthen, Lord, we pray. Reform and purify your bride unto glory and power in the earth. Oh, Father, we praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.